Good evening. Uh, it's uh, my delight and honor to welcome you all uh, to the annual Stickard Morishima Lecture and to have the honor of introducing our speaker for this evening, Professor Al Roth. The Morishima Lectures are named after the Stickard founder and its first director, Michio Morishima. I never had the benefit of meeting Michio, but um, by all accounts, he was an extraordinarily visionary scholar, a professor in the economics department who thought far beyond himself and established through the support of Santuri and Toyota the first major research center uh, at the LSE dedicated to economic scholarship in 1979. Michio Morishima's legend lives on through the many scholars and ideas that have flourished through his vision and through this lecture series. We're honored to have with us tonight Michio's widow, Thank you very much, Mrs. Yoko Morishima, for joining us. Michio Morishima's, uh, Morishima's pioneering spirit is what we look for in choosing people for this lecture series, people who have helped revolutionize their fields, pushing the frontier of economics. Professor Al Roth exactly embodies this spirit. Al Roth is the Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics at Stanford University, the Gund Professor of Economics and Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard University, and the 2017 President of the American Economics Association. In, in 2012, Al Roth won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences jointly with Lloyd Shapley for the, fee, for the theory of stable allocations and the practice of market design, the field he'll be talking about this evening. But he is one of the very few people in the world who could easily have received the Nobel Prize for two separate and distinct fields which he fathered. It was in his capacity as one of the founding fathers of the field of experimental economics, which he won't be talking about tonight, that I and hundreds of others around the world got to learn from Al as a graduate student. But it was only later that I got to understand what made Al able to build fields and lead so many others. In a crazy stroke of luck, as a first-year assistant professor at Harvard, I got assigned the office next to Al's. And for the next seven years, I was able to witness the extraordinary generosity with which he approached every graduate student, faculty member, undergrad, random person who asked him how, how to design the market that they were in. All were welcomed and given time mentored and built up. There seemed to be no trade-off in Al's mind between working on his own papers or helping others. And so his two fields of experimental economics and market design grew and grew with extraordinary scholarship that has helped change the world. He'll tell us a bit about the content of that scholarship and its effects tonight. But I wanted you to just get a glimpse of the kind of person and the process behind the scenes that has allowed such wonderful science to flourish. Professor Roth. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Nava. Thank you all for coming, and I'm, I'm glad to be speaking in honor of uh, Michio Morishima. Um, I'm going to try to talk to you today about a little bit about how marketplaces and markets interact. But probably if there's one takeaway 
from my talk today, it's that there's a, a much wider variety of markets and marketplaces than we often think about when we think about them. And so I'll, I'll spend a little time today talking to you about some fairly exotic markets that are concerning me at the moment. Now, I wrote a book about this in, in 2015, and it came out simultaneously in translation into British English. And, <laughs> and, 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 and since then, it's been translated into even, even less similar languages. And it shouldn't surprise us that a book on markets is, is translated into languages, because markets and languages have a lot in common. They are both ancient human artifacts. We don't often think of them this way. But, of course, languages and markets are both tools that we build to coordinate with each other and to communicate with each other and to compete with each other. And languages are undoubtedly older than markets, but markets are very old. Certainly, they go back into prehistory when archaeologists find stone tools distributed thousands of miles from where they were quarried. It's a sign that our prehistoric ancestors knew something about trade and exchange. And just as there are lots of different languages, there are lots of different kinds of markets. And I think that often when we we think about markets quickly, and even when we teach about them in economics, we think about commodity markets. And not all markets are commodity markets, but let's start by talking about one. Here's here's the other LSE, the, the London Stock Exchange. And when you, when you want to buy shares on the London Stock Exchange, you don't care who you're dealing with. You're not about to build a relationship. If you're trying to buy shares of Sainsbury's, all you care about is the price. And the job of the London Stock Exchange is from moment to moment to find the price at which supply equals demand for each of the financial commodities that are traded there. And the person you're buying from doesn't care who he's selling to, and the person, uh, and, and you don't care who you're buying from. You don't worry whether they've taken good care of those shares while they had them, and not, they don't worry whether you're going to take good care of those shares. It's a purely financial transaction. But lots of markets don't work that way. I, I should add that commodity markets are a great feat of market design. It takes time and thought to design commodities. One of the things I I think I say in the book is that God made wheat, but the Chicago Board of Trade made number two hard red winter wheat, which which is what we bake bread out of, and which you can buy 5,000 bushels of without inspecting, right? You can buy it before it's planted. And that's a great virtue of a commodity market. You can offer to buy or sell from whomever is willing to buy or sell at those prices. But lots of markets don't work like that. Because in many markets, you care who you're dealing with, and prices don't do all the work. And in fact, I'll talk to you today about, somewhat I'll talk to you today about kidney transplantation, which is a a marketplace in which we don't allow prices to do any of the work. But there are many, many markets in which prices don't do all the work. So for example, here at at this LSE, um, tuition is charged to study here. But not everyone who can afford to pay the tuition can come and study here. You have to be admitted to the LSE before you can come study here. So this is a market in which you can't just choose to come here. There's, there's another admissions process, applications and uh, letters of recommendation and interviews that determine who can come here. And of course, the LSE is also a, a labor market. It employs professors. Uh, 
And just as the LSE doesn't raise tuition until supply equals demand and just enough students want to come, you have to be admitted. Similarly, it doesn't, this may come as a surprise, it doesn't lower the wage of professors <laughs> until just enough people want to come and, and teach here. Uh, it, it's, I gather, a pretty desirable job. And so there are lots of people who would like to be professors here. Um, but another way in which it's different from a commodity market is if you look at the London Stock Exchange and you see what the price is of, of Sainsbury's, um, it might be that at that price you'll be a buyer and at another price, a, lower, a different price, you'd be a seller. But labor markets are, have buyers and sellers too. The LSE hires professors and the professors offer their services to LSE. But, but if the price of being a university professor dropped lower, I might change my career, but it's unlikely that I would enter the market on the other side and become a university and start employing professors because <laughs> they, were, they were so cheap. So, so markets, like labor markets, are quite a bit more complicated than commodity markets. And this is true of labor markets in general. You can't just work for Google. You also have to be hired. And neither can Google decide who should work for them. They have to compete with Facebook and with other employers. So these are markets that are a little bit like marriage because you can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. And so marriage markets have to have some component of mutual choice in them. And in general, matching markets are markets in which you can't just choose what you want, even if you can afford it. You also have to be chosen. So, of course, there are lots of markets that aren't pure matching markets like marriage or pure commodity markets like the London Stock Exchange. And one of the interesting things about studying markets and marketplaces is seeing how new technologies make different kinds of markets possible. So think about Amazon, which has great market penetration for all sorts of things in the United States, and I assume is familiar here as well. Uh, it was made possible by the Internet. Amazon is basically a logistics company that doesn't, it isn't near where you are, but it can bring things to wherever you are, and you can contact it through the Internet. It, it became all of a sudden very easy for them to make themselves available to people wherever they were. But Uber, another new marketplace for, that, that matches travelers to drivers, uh, couldn't work on the internet. If you had to go to your office and get on your office computer and order a taxi, that, that would never substitute for ordering a taxi the way you used to order to do it. But, but, so Uber depended on, on smartphones. Your smartphone knows where you are, which is the information that's needed in order to match passengers and drivers. So, so one of the things that we see in the proliferation of markets that are aided by computers is we, we can see more clearly how marketplaces interact with markets. Because the marketplace for Amazon or for Uber is your computer or your smartphone. And because it's a computer-aided market, the rules of the market have to be defined very explicitly so that they can be coded. And that helps emphasize that a big part of a marketplace's design consists of its rules. What, just how are transactions conducted? And how transactions are conducted make a big difference in how a market works. And that's why Amazon and Uber have been able to, to uh, enter the pre-existing markets for all sorts of books and other commodities and all sorts of transportation uh, so effectively. So let me use Airbnb as an example 
of a marketplace to tell you what I think marketplaces have to do in general. So not just Airbnb, but many marketplaces have to do the kinds of things that Airbnb has to do. So the first thing that Airbnb had to do was establish a thick market. Right? It's, a, it's a marketplace. In order for it to be a market for travelers and hosts, it has to get lots of travelers and lots of hosts. And Airbnb started as a website in San Francisco. And to help make their market thicker, the first thing they started to do was to acquire competitors. And one of the first ones they acquired was Crash Patter that started here in London. And that was a very Airbnb-like site. And once they had merged with Airbnb, they were, there was an opportunity for people living in London to find rooms in San Francisco and for people living in San Francisco to find rooms in, in London. And that started to make the market thicker. It became more sensible to, to look to Airbnb when you wanted to find a place to stay wherever you might be going. Now, as the market became thick, as they started to have lots of travelers and lots of hosts, they had to face a different problem, which is faced by, I think, most markets that, that become thick, that are successful in becoming thick, and they had to deal with congestion. And to think about the problem of congestion for Airbnb, think about how Airbnb is different from a hotel company, because most of their competitors nowadays are big hotel companies. They, Airbnb is a big hotel company. So think about the Rosewood Hotel here in London. If I wanted a room at the Rosewood Hotel for tomorrow night, what I would do is I would call up the hotel and I would say, do you have a a room free for tomorrow? And the receptionist would have the ability to look at all their rooms and see if one was free and tell me yes or no. But that's not Airbnb's situation because many of their rooms and apartments and homes for rent are each controlled by a proprietor who, who may only control that one property. So imagine that that was the case at the Rosewood Hotel. I would call up and I'd say, do you have a room for me tomorrow night? And the receptionist would ask, which room are you interested in? And I'd say, well, how about room 201? And she'd say, I'm so sorry, you know, that, that room's taken. And then as I, as I said into the phone, you know, don't hang up, don't hang up, she'd hang up and I'd have to call back and I'd say, how about room 202? <laughs> uh, and I'd say, oh, sure, you know, why... Absolutely. You know, we'll, we'll book you for room 202. So that's sort of Airbnb's problem. They, they have a lot of rooms and apartments and such um, owned by a single proprietor. And if I don't succeed in, in uh, reserving one, then I have to try again. And when Airbnb started as an Internet company rather than a smartphone company, uh, when they started, often it took a while to get a reservation confirmed. That is, if you wanted to, to reserve a room that I might be renting in California, you would apply for it. Well, I, I would put it up for rent in the morning before I left for work. You would apply for it when you thought about it. When I came home from work, I would see perhaps that three people had tried to reserve it, and I would, I would confirm the reservation for the first person, for instance, and I'd have to tell you and another person, I'm sorry, that you know, room 200 is not available. Um, and then you'd have to start over. So as the market got thicker, that became a more cumbersome process, and it, it threatened to, to break the franchise that Airbnb was trying to build. And so they've made a number of changes in their rules, and one of them is they now allow you to, they, they now offer hosts the possibility of saying, anyone who has more than a, a certain number of successful visits on Airbnb can book my room instantly. They can, they can, I'll be an instant booking. Anyone who meets certain qualifications can just 
click on the listing and know that they've confirmed it. And when I asked it, Airbnb to show instant book listings here, you know, near the near the London School of Economics. I see that there are not so many, but a few homes for rent, apartments for rent, that um, that would allow me to book instantly. So that starts to be competitive with a hotel. That is, I can decide I want to stay somewhere tomorrow, find a place that looks good, and confirm immediately that I can be there, not have to wait for 24 hours while the the host responds. So. So that helps them deal with congestion, and that's why they're the successful hotel company that they are. Now, there are some other things that marketplaces have to do, and one of them is establish trust and reliability and safety. And so Airbnb, for instance, wants you to be confident that when you rent the, the room that I'm renting, uh, that I'm offering for rent, that when you get there, the, the picture that I've shown on their site will look like the room that you're actually going to rent. So Hosts have reputations, and travelers have reputations. The hosts are eager to be assured that you have experience being someone's guest before and that you're a, a, a good guest who, who hosts don't complain about. You don't trash the apartment. Uh, so, so establishing trust and, and reputation is a little bit harder among people who don't know each other than among bricks-and-mortar establishments where you can see the hotel and maybe inspect it before you stay in it. Now... The last thing, and, and one that I'll, I'll lead into because, because I'm going to talk about it today, is we don't really allow every marketplace to exist. And so to be successful, markets have to avoid what I'll call repugnance. And let's call a transaction repugnant if some people want to engage in it and others don't think they should be allowed to. Now, that's too broad a definition because it covers a lot of reasons why other people think you maybe shouldn't be allowed to do this transaction. But let's think about Airbnb for a moment. If you own a flat in some building where, where the other flats are all owned by the people who live in them, you might not be glad at all if someone planning to be a professional Airbnb host bought a flat in your building and started to rent it to Airbnb short-term customers. Because now, instead of the quiet residential building that you had bought your flat in, you would find yourself living in a hotel. So... Having, having one of your neighbors be an Airbnb host might provide negative externalities to you. It would, it would harm you, even though you're not part of the transaction. So that's a sort of simple kind of repugnance, and we know about regulating markets and having zoning rules about where hotels can be and where they can't. But I'm going to talk to you today about a different kind of repugnance, which is transactions that some people want to engage in and others don't think they should be allowed to, even though the others can't detect that the transaction has taken place unless someone tells them. And what I mean by that phrase is to, to suggest that there are no easily measurable or maybe even noticeable negative externalities on third parties. And there are lots of repugnant transactions of this sort that we're all familiar with, both in, in the UK and the US. Only in, the, in recent years have we legally allowed same-sex marriage, for example. And same-sex marriage is the kind of transaction that I think of as a, a prototypical repugnant transaction in this latter sense. That is, some people would like to marry each other, and other people think they shouldn't be allowed to, even though it's hard to tell whether someone is married or not. That's why people often wear wedding rings, to let you know that they're married. And this is something that divided Americans, and I imagine it divided 
people in the UK as well. Uh, but we've changed our mind about that. Not, not, that it has, not that some people still don't think of it as a transaction that people shouldn't be allowed to do. So repugnant transactions can be politically powerful and divisive. And on another occasion, or maybe during the question and answer period, I'll be happy to, to talk more about repugnant transactions. But today, I'm going to focus on a class of transactions that, that are more special than that. There's, I, I want to think about a class of transactions that are repugnant only when money is added into the transaction. So a class of transactions that aren't repugnant when done without money, but that become repugnant when money is involved. And the way I'll get into this is I'm going to talk to you about kidney transplantation, which uh, involves kidney donation, which is a great thing, you know, universally acclaimed. Um, but in Britain, in the United States, in most of the world, it's a crime to buy a kidney for transplantation. So, so being given a kidney, giving a kidney is a great thing, but selling a kidney is a crime in most of the world. But before I talk about kidneys, let me just, to put it in context, remind you of other things that you may know of where, where people have very different opinions about what is repugnant and what's not. And so let me talk about surrogacy, the practice of contracting with someone to bear a baby, not her own. So I come from California. I, I flew in... Uh, yesterday. Um, and in California, surrogacy is fully legal. You can, in fact, purchase the whole supply chain of a baby in California. You can buy sperm and eggs and have them artificially inseminated into a gestational surrogate, a surrogate who will not be genetically related to the child, and sign reliable legal contracts that will have your name as the parent on the California birth certificate. Okay. Now, that's not true everywhere. For instance, in Germany, everything about surrogacy is illegal. And here in England, things are somewhere in between in a, in a complicated way. So here's, here's some remarks about the German surrogacy law. They say surrogacy contracts um, are viewed as unethical and therefore treated as void in Germany. So the first thing it says is, it's not a reliable contract. You can't, it's, it's not an enforceable contract. It's not a contract that you can make legally. But it goes on and it says the activities performed by those arranging for surrogacy are punishable offenses. So, so not only aren't surrogacy contracts binding contracts, but the act of trying to arrange a surrogacy is a crime. And the mother of the child is the woman who gave birth to the child, that is the surrogate mother and not the commissioning mother. And for this reason, German authorities cannot recognize the maternity of a commissioning mother, even if a foreign birth certificate confirms her as the ostensible mother. And what that means in practice is German embassies have refused to issue passports for surrogate children of German nationals who have gone overseas to, to have children, which they can't otherwise have and which they can't have in Germany. Now, so, so in California, it's legal. In Germany, it's illegal. In England... Here in the UK, um, the surrogates are the legal mother of any child they carry unless they sign a parental order after they give birth, transferring their rights to the intended parents. So surrogacy is legal here, but it's not a reliable method of family planning because you can't um, consummate the contract until after the baby is born. And furthermore, it's illegal to pay a surrogate. So surrogacy is legal What's illegal is paying a surrogate. So it won't surprise you that there's not a lot of surrogacy in England. And instead, what there is 
around the world to various places, not just California, is fertility tourism. And people who are unable to have a child in other ways often travel to, to where they can have a child. And this is a consequence of the fact that, that surrogacy is not uniformly regarded as repugnant. It's regarded as repugnant in some places but not in others. And just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, what we're talking about is the urge to, to have your own kids is very strong. Maybe not for, for you, that is. Maybe, maybe adoption would be a reasonable opportunity for lots of people. But for some people, it's not. And as a bit of evidence for that, let me suggest that in Sweden, where transplantation is illegal, they've pioneered womb transplants. Okay, so sometimes people really want to have their own kid and are willing to go to extraordinary lengths to have it. But people who can travel to California or Cambodia or Laos, until recently India, uh, can try to have children by surrogates elsewhere. There's a, a good deal of British fertility tourism to the surrogacy market in California. One of the high-profile cases involved two British aristocrats who, who spoke very clearly of why they went to California. And they said, and, and their problem was they'd had a first child and it was a very risky pregnancy and the, the mom was advised that she couldn't become pregnant again. Uh, and they say they settled on California uh, because California has reliable legal uh, procedures for surrogacy. For example, it allows money to be exchanged, so it's not hard to engage a surrogate. Incidentally, the typical surrogate in California is a married mother of, of children, right? someone who, who is the mother of a family and didn't mind being pregnant and has healthy children. And they say, obviously, we would have preferred to do it uh, in Britain, but the legal system in Britain hasn't evolved uh, with the medical technology, so any contract with a surrogate is not binding. And even if the baby is 100% yours, they were the, they, they, this couple provided both the sperm and the egg, so it's genetically their baby, um, the surrogate still has the right to keep the baby in Britain. California has the most evolved legal system. So what they're, what they're saying is that there's a marketplace for surrogacy, and in different parts of the world it has different rules. In Germany, where it's illegal, it's a black market. That is, you have to do things that are against the law. In England, it's, it's not a black market. You can come back with your California birth certificate that says you're the parents, and you can have paid the surrogate. In Britain, it's legal, but it's not a well-functioning marketplace. Okay, so I, I mention that just as, as sort of preparation, because I'm going to tell you something about, about kidneys in a minute. So the, the, the markets that I've helped design range across markets like labor markets where wages are very important, of course, but, but they're not the only thing. They don't decide who gets what, so they are matching markets where wages are important. Many, increasing number of, of big American cities now use school choice matching systems that my colleagues and I have, have helped design in which no money changes hands. These are for, uh, for municipal schools, what we call public schools. Uh, and and what, what makes it a market, what, the reason markets are important is that families have important information about which schools would be good for their kids, and the job of a marketplace is to aggregate that privately held information. But what I want to talk to you about today is the most exotic, in a sense, the, the least like a commodity market of, of the markets that, that you may have heard of, uh, about kidney exchange. And kidney exchange is shaped by repugnance quite a bit, because although... 
healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with one, and so there are increasingly many living donors. I'll tell you about that. It's, it's a great thing if you decide to give someone a kidney, but it's a crime if you decide to sell it to them. So, so this is a place where repugnance really binds. The title of my first paper on repugnance was Repugnance as a Constraint on Markets. It's a, it's a tight constraint here. So let me tell you about kidney failure and transplantation so I can tell you about the need for kidneys and, and the, the marketplaces for them. So there's a, a temporary way to stay alive when, when you have kidney failure and it's dialysis. And dialysis is not distributed equally around the globe. Uh, and, and sadly, the places where the prevalence of kidney disease is highest are the places with the least dialysis. So, so there's, you know, one of the things economists talk about is inequality. An important kind of inequality to talk about in the world is health inequality. Now, transplantation is also not distributed uniformly around the world. Western Europe and the United States have pretty high rates of transplantation, but I'll show you not, not nearly high enough. And again, the places with the highest incidence of kidney disease have, have the lowest rates of transplantation. And so here's a graph that shows you the kidney dona- donation rates per million population, deceased donors, which in blue, and uh, living donors in, in pink, I guess. And you see that Western Europe has lots of donation. Uh, here's the U.S. and here's the U.K. Uh, but there are parts of the world where there's enough transplantation. This is transplantation, not just donation. There's enough transplantation going on to assure you that they have first-rate hospitals. They can do transplants. But they don't happen at large volume because, loosely speaking, their national health services don't pay for transplantation. So these are places where if you were in the Philippines or in Mexico and needed a transplant and could afford it, you could get first world medical care. But many, many people in their population cannot. And the story in the US where where we have first world medical care uh, is there are about 100,000 people on the waiting list for deceased donors this morning, but we only do about 12,000 transplants a year. So that means that the wait is long and dangerous and dialysis is no fun. You, in later stages when you need lots of dialysis, you, you can't really hold down a job anymore. Uh, and thousands of people die each year while waiting. So, so waiting for a transplant on dialysis is not a good situation to be in. And elsewhere, the situation is much, much worse. Right? Millions of people die every year uh, due to the absence of, of transplantation. Here's the story in Britain. Um, these are your number of transplants from deceased donors each year, and this is your waiting list. So there are lots more people waiting than there are donations each year in Britain. So the situation in Britain is pretty similar to the situation in the United States. So this is a place where it would be good to get more transplants. And when economists normally look at, at long queues, and you know, here's a queue of 100,000, they say, well, you know, prices aren't being allowed to work here. People are queuing up for something in short supply. Um, you know, if you raise the price, maybe there'd be more supply. But, but by law, the price has to be zero. Kidneys have to be a gift. And it's a, it's a law everywhere in the world, with the single exception of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So, so it's a very widespread law. It's not something that you can snap your fingers and change, even if you thought it was a good idea to change. And it reflects a repugnance, a widespread repugnance for buying and selling human organs. 
And the situation is similar in Europe. You remember Europe. Um, here's the uh, uh, deceased donor rate. Uh, yeah, here's the deceased donor. Here's the living donor. And here's the waiting list. Right? So around the world, even in the developed world where we do the most transplants, uh, there aren't enough kidneys. And in the developing world, there aren't enough transplants, mostly for financial reasons. So in the US, we have started to get more transplants. And in the UK, too, I'll tell you about that. Uh, we started to get more transplants uh, from living donors. So in recent years, we've had about 6,000 transplants a year from living donors. That means, incidentally, that we have just about as many living donors as we do deceased donors. Because deceased donors, remember, give two kidneys, and living donors only give one. Right? So the reason we can have living donation is that healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy in one, with one. But sometimes, even though you're healthy enough to give someone you love a kidney, which would save their life, you can't, you're healthy enough to give someone a kidney, but you can't give it to the person you love because kidneys also have to be matched. They have to be well-matched to the, the biology of the recipient. And this is where economists come in because this opens up the possibility of exchange. And exchange is one of the things that economists study. So here's a picture of the simplest kind of kidney exchange. Donor one loves recipient one, but they have blood types that make it hard for recipient one to take donor one's kidney. And donor two and recipient two are in the same situation, but with the blood types reversed. So you can see in this picture, it's possible for the recipient who needs a blood type B kidney to get one, and the recipient who needs a blood type A kidney to get one. That's a, the simplest form of kidney exchange. And by doing that, if we can execute that exchange, we can make available two more transplants than would otherwise have been available. What used to happen when potential donors were incompatible with their recipients is they were sent home. You'd, you'd go to your patient's nephrologist, they'd do a blood test, and they'd say, I'm so sorry, you can't give a kidney, go home. Okay? But now we do kidney exchange. Now, notice that no money changes hands. I already mentioned to you it's against the law in the United States to purchase a kidney. The particular bit of the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 that, that applies says it's unlawful for any person to uh, transfer any human organ for valuable consideration for the use in human transplantation. Okay? Laws like that are all around the world. Here's the British law. It's the UK Human Tissue Act of 2004. It says a person commits an offense if he gives or receives a reward for the supply of or for an offer to supply any controlled material. This is in the Human Tissue Act. Uh, the controlled materials they're speaking about here are organs. And then it goes on to say it's illegal to do anything to promote this, to advertise or to solicit or to do anything like that. And in Europe, they have a similar set of laws. Here's a, a, a general statement. The human body and its parts shall not, as such, give rise to financial gain. So it's expensive to get a kidney transplant. The surgeons have to be paid. The, the, all sorts of people have to be paid. But you can't pay the donor of the kidney. So kidney exchange is, is a little bit complex because it operates in this legal framework. So here's a set of pictures that were taken in 2006 in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm the man in the yellow gown keeping my hands out of the way so no one hands me anything. And in this bucket is a, is a kidney. And the kidney has just been removed in an operating room, just steps behind me in this picture. It's not, not this picture, but steps behind me in this picture off, off screen. 
uh, there's another operating room, and the nephrology, the, 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 the um, sorry, the nephrectomy, the, the kidney removal, has just been conducted there, and the kidney is sitting in this icy bucket. And over here, that kidney is going into this gentleman who, who, um, who is a patient there in Cincinnati, Ohio. And at the same time, his donor and this donor's patient are undergoing the same nephrectomy and transplantation in Toledo, Ohio. And this, when I say at the same time, I mean literally the same time. This gentleman is a surgeon named Steve Woodle. And once, in Cincinnati, once the patients had been prepared, once they'd been anesthetized and initial incisions had been made, he got on his cell phone from the operating room and he called up Mike Reese in Toledo, Ohio. And he said, Mike, we're ready in Cincinnati. Are you ready in Toledo? And when he was told that they were, the operations went ahead. And the reason they do that this way is because the American law says no valuable consideration can be given for a kidney. So that doesn't merely say you can't pay money. It says you can't write a contract. So you can't write a binding contract in the United States that says we will give you a kidney today and you give us a kidney tomorrow. So to make sure both sides of the, of the exchange go through, they're done simultaneously. Now, doing them simultaneously solves that problem, but you can see it presents a congestion problem in carrying out these trades because even this simplest surgery, which just involves two pairs, requires four simultaneous operating rooms. Okay, you need two nephrectomies and two transplants, four operating rooms and four surgical teams. So in fact, this was in 2006, by then we were, we were able to muster three uh, three-way exchanges. We were able to, to get six operating rooms when we had to. But that strained the logistics about as far as we could go. So we needed to think about ways to, to make this market less congested, allow more complicated transactions to go through, even though it would take time for surgeries to be accomplished. So we had to somehow break this simultaneity constraint. And the solution to that eventually has to do with non-directed donors. So non-directed donors, we have um, a couple of hundred a year in the United States. These are people who want to give someone a kidney and are not particular about who. They don't have a particular uh, recipient in mind, but they've been moved to donate a kidney. And before there was kidney exchange, what, what they used to be told is, well, first they have to go through lots of screening, psychological as well as medical. But if they qualify, they're told, you know, you could, you could save someone's life. You could give a kidney to someone who's on the waiting list for a deceased donor kidney. But now that we had a thick market of incompatible patient-donor pairs waiting to exchange with each other, you could offer a more enticing opportunity to a non-directed donor. You could say, you know, you might be able to spark several transplants by giving to a recipient of an incompatible donor whose donor would pass it forward to another recipient whose donor would give to someone on the waiting list. Okay, so instead of causing one transplant to happen, you could cause three to happen. And here's, here's what a, a picture from those days looks like. Here's, here's six people uh, in a news story published in 2007, but they were a, a 2006 chain. And the question you can ask is, why are there only six people in that picture? And the reason there were only six people is, we did, is these things were all done simultaneously, and we could only get six operating rooms together at the same time. So six... Uh, nephrectomies and six transplants take six operating rooms and produce three transplants that wouldn't otherwise have happened instead of just one. So that's great. 
but six is not a big number. So you'd like to be able to, to think about, could we, could we do better than this? And so let's think again about why the pairwise exchanges are all conducted simultaneously. Okay? So let's look at this pairwise exchange and suppose we didn't conduct it simultaneously. We always do, but let's suppose we didn't. So on day one, donor two successfully gives his kidney to recipient one and no longer has a kidney. And on day two, for whatever reason, donor one fails to give a kidney to recipient two. That's this broken link here. That's a really bad outcome because pair two has been really harmed. They've had a surgery that didn't help them, and they no longer have a kidney. So when we run the next kidney exchange, the next day or the next week, they won't be able to participate. So, so if we allowed this to happen, they would be deeply harmed. And so we always run these simultaneously. But suppose instead we have a, a live non-directed donor. Let's think about running that on, on simultaneously. So on day one, the non-directed donor successfully gives to recipient one. And on day two, for whatever reason, donor one fails to give to recipient two. That's very disappointing. But it's not tragic. Pair two is no worse off than they are before this non-directed donor appeared. And in particular, they still have a kidney to exchange. When we run the next kidney exchange, they'll be able to participate. So the cost of a broken link is less. And that allows us to start to explore the, the benefits of having a broken link. We uh, actually spoke about this in a, in a paper in the American Journal of Transplantation with Frank Delmonico. He's one of the heroes of, of kidney exchange. But it was Mike Reese, the fellow who was in Toledo, Ohio, who actually did the first uh, non-simultaneous chain. And this is a paper that has not just surgeons, but an economist and a, and a lawyer uh, some other people on it. And the first chain had 20 people in the picture, 10 transplants at the time that it was conducted, 10 transplants and 10 nephrectomies. And that was on the date of publication. The last lady in the chain who identified herself and can be named, her name is Helena McKinney, she was actually blood type AB. We ended the chain. Her mom got a kidney, and then she was the next person in the chain. We don't do that anymore because it turns out it's quite hard to find appropriate ongoing matches for people who are blood type AB. And in fact, it took three years to find an appropriate match for her. And when she was called up, she was game. And the picture added another 12 people to it before ending with, with a donation to someone on the deceased donor waiting list. So the chance of multiplying the effect of this non-directed donor becomes well worth the potential cost of having a broken link. And we only have about 2% of the links that could be broken are broken. Right? So, so it turns out we're now doing lots of exchanges through chains. The average non-directed donor chain in the United States now uh, has 10 people in the picture. It gets five transplants done. And the longest ones are quite long. Here's, here's a picture with 60 people in the picture. Uh, and there are longer chains still. This one was in uh, 2012. So... Um, so, so you know, if you're able to solve the congestion problem, you can make a lot more transplants available. So here in Britain, you have kidney exchange as well. It's proceeding on a more stately pace. Uh, the first non-directed donation was allowed in 2007. Uh, in 2012, they allowed donation to a pair who would then donate to someone on the, on the waiting list. And since 2015, six-person chains have been allowed. I'm confident that soon 
longer chains will, will happen here in Britain also. But already they're having some good effect. Here, here's, you know, here's from uh, NHS blood and transplant. Uh, allowing longer chains gets you more what they call extra transplants for, for each chain, as you would expect. So, so the rules of the marketplace here are a little different in the U.S., but they, they've been tracking our development as well. So I imagine this is part of the fun of market design as you experiment with different rules and, and rules that, that seem to be successful get adopted elsewhere. Now, in the U.S., we, we have a fair amount of non-directed donation and, and uh, exchange transplantation so that today it's, it's about 14% of American living donor transplants. So that's not as big as it could be, but, but it's become a standard kind of American transplantation. We have, we have about 600 transplants a year, uh, that, maybe a little more than that, that, that arise in this way. But it's still not nearly enough. Okay, remember, we have 100,000 people on the waiting list. And I could tell you today, I could tell you today about victory after victory in this war, but I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you that it's a war that we're losing. When I started working on kidney transplantation, there were about 45,000 people on the waiting list for deceased donation. And today there are 100,000. And that's because there's a diabetes epidemic and, and some other things. But it's also because we don't have enough kidneys for transplantation. So the question is how to, and, and the problem is worse elsewhere in the world. Uh, so kidney exchange is, is appearing outside the U.S., but, but this is a war that, that we are not winning. So the question is how can we enlarge the possibility of transplantation around the world? So remember when I showed you the Philippines and Mexico and their rates of transplantation, one of the things I showed you is that they, they can do transplants there. You could, get a fi- you could get fine medical care there, but lots of their citizens can't afford it. So one thing we've started to talk about, talk about which we call global kidney exchange, is the possibility of mutually beneficial interaction between first world countries like the U.S. and Britain and developing countries like Mexico and the Philippines that have transplantation, but not enough of it. And so in particular, we could think about kidney exchange between an incompatible first world pair and a a developing world pair that can't afford to get a transplant. So the first pair of this sort that we were able to transplant comes from the Philippines. And uh, in the Philippines, I believe the national health insurance pays for something like 46 days of dialysis, right? If your kidney fails, you know, in the United States, you need dialysis three days a week for years. So kidney failure in the Philippines is a death sentence, unless you're, you have the means to, to buy appropriate treatment, which is then available. So these guys have a, you know, they, they were not doing well, but they were invited to the United States, where an American non-directed donor initiated a chain by giving kidney to Jose, whose wife, Christine, continued the chain. And here's the chain uh, to date. Uh, so the American non-directed donor was blood type A, gave a kidney to uh, Jose, who was blood type A, whose wife, Christine, continued the chain. And the chain was, was done mostly in Ohio, uh, although around the country. I mean, it was organized from Ohio. Um, and um, at the moment, it has 11 pairs in it, one Philippine pair and 10 American pairs. So, so each pair in the chain got a kidney and gave a kidney. That's 
what kidney exchange is. And I have to tell you how this was financed, because it turns out when, when a chain facilitates the transplant of an American, whenever an American is transplanted, that saves some part of the American healthcare system about a quarter of a million dollars in the first five years. And that's because transplantation is much cheaper than dialysis. Okay? So, so the global kidney exchange proposal that I'm going to tell you about today is how to expand the developed world market for kidney exchange to, to include developing world patient donor pairs in a mutually beneficial exchange. So <clears throat> they're now safely home. They, they got their uh, transplant in 2015. Once you've received a transplant, you need immunosuppressive drugs every day forever. Right? So part of the savings to the American healthcare system finances an escrow fund for, for post-surgical care. They're back in the Philippines where, where excellent care exists if you can afford it, and they, they can now afford it. Uh, so it's self-financing. That's, that's what I started to say. Uh, cost of dialysis pay by the cheapest payer, which is Medicare, is about $90,000 per year. And private insurers who are responsible for patients for the first 33 months pay about three times that. Um, average dialysis time is five years. Transplantation costs $120,000 the first year. And then in the United States, the drugs cost about $20,000 a year. So there's a big savings in the second year already to, to the American transplant system to have a, a, a foreign patient facilitate the transplant of an American patient. And that savings is enough to finance the care of the, of the foreign pair. Now, one economics question is, is this just a short-term thing, you know, an accounting uh, observation, or will it persist if, if global kidney exchange happened on a large scale? Because if global kidney exchange happened on a large scale, the waiting list in the developed world, the waiting list would get shorter, the waiting time for a transplant would get shorter, and therefore the cost of dialysis would get shorter. Turns out when you look at it carefully, you find that even if the average dialysis cost dropped below the surgery cost so that the average saving from dialysis no longer paid for a foreign surgery, it would still be self-financing because the, the developed world patients, the American patients who would be matched to foreign donors, would be the ones who were, who were hard to match, who were going to be unusually long on dialysis. So, so it turns out this is something that could be self-sustaining for quite a long time and at quite a large scale. Now, at the moment, we're... We haven't solved the market design problems of financial education, of uh, financial engineering. The, the medical logistics, we've now done four of these, so the, the medical logistics are solvable, how to, how to move the information around and ultimately the patients and the, um, get the surgeries done. But the financial flows are going to have to do with moving the money from where it's saved, which is dialysis clinics and payment for dialysis to where there are the new costs for the foreign pair. And the new costs will be at transplant centers that have to do surgeries. And we still haven't quite figured out how to do this because Medicare is far and away the biggest payer for both dialysis and surgery in the United States. But you probably don't have this problem here, but, but Medicare is a little bit bureaucratic. And it's hard, hard to imagine that it would be possible to get them to pay for a Philippine pair who are not enrolled in Medicare. So we think a more likely avenue is through self-insured companies who are responsible under American healthcare for the first 33 months of, of dialysis for someone they insure. So that is an even bigger savings if you can avoid that. 
but, but there's still room to work that out. Now, another concern, and the reason I started off by talking to you about repugnance, is not just that repugnance shapes kidney exchange because you can't buy a kidney, but it's because global kidney exchange is sure to at least have the potential to arouse repugnance because we're talking about living donors from poor countries. So right away, if you have any experience with the, the black markets that exist around the world for kidney transplantation against the law, black markets run by criminals, you know that they don't work very well at all and they tend to... Uh, victimize poor and vulnerable people. So I think a first reaction, many people may conflate global kidney exchange with, with selling a kidney or buying a kidney on a black market. So, so I don't think that's what it is. I'm trying to convince you as well. But, but I take repugnance very seriously. In other words, even if you think that maybe we should be allowed to buy and sell kidneys, and many economists think that, you have to be impressed when you see something that's against the law everywhere in the world. So there's some real phenomenon, whether you agree with it or not, that, that it impinges on how kidney transplants are done. And so here we are talking about bringing patients and donors from the Philippines, or as I'll show you, from Mexico. And for sure, and I'll, I'll explain that too, for sure there are going to be people who think, there are going to be people who think that's a bad idea, that, that, that they're being exploited. So... In particular, uh, just this May, I was a co-author with Mike Reese. He's the hero of this story. He's the surgeon who was in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, on, the, on the first paper about global kidney exchange, which recounted the story of the Philippine pair that I just told you. And the American Journal of Transplantation published it in its March, March issue. And in the same issue, they published an editorial saying that it was a bad idea. And... They didn't quite come out and say it was a bad idea, but, but you can see, you know, it says financial incompatibility and paired kidney exchange. Are we walking a tightrope or, or blazing a trail? And basically what they didn't like, well, they didn't like a couple of things, but one of the things they uh, objected to was this picture. Okay, and when I showed you this picture, I said, look, every pair gets a kidney and gives a kidney. It starts with an American non-directed donor, goes to the Philippine pair, and continues. What they looked at is they said, look at this. There's one Philippine pair and ten American pairs. You guys clearly are exploiting them. They would have been, you know, you should have left them alone in the Philippines. They don't go on to say where, they, where, where Jose surely would have died. Okay? Um, but, again, while I don't agree that you should think of this as repugnant, I, I take very seriously that some people might. So... So that's something to be concerned about. And that's not the only evidence of, of potential repugnance. I, uh, so, so we have to think about what could, what could make it repugnant and how might we fix that. So one concern is maybe you'd, you'd be bringing people from far places and then sending them home where they couldn't get adequate care. That would be repugnant, right? You'd, you'd, you'd have tricked them into thinking they were getting care, but they'd go home and, and lose the kidney and, and die. And in fact, when I... Before we started in the Philippines, I visited uh, Lagos in Nigeria, and Mike Reese visited Kenya, and there just wasn't enough medical infrastructure there to send patients home. The reason we ended up with the Philippines and Mexico is you can, you, there are good surgeons there. there are, you, you can send patients home there. So the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that we can guarantee or at least have a reasonable confidence, as we do with American patients, of having adequate post-surgical care. And that's where this idea of escrow funds will be built into to the global kidney exchange marketplace. 
Now, there's also a problem that, as I mentioned, there are black markets in kidneys. You can, you can buy a kidney if you need a transplant. You can find a willing seller. Um, but it's illegal in the Philippines, in Mexico, in the United States, in England. So one concern might be that we're seeing these foreign pairs, but, but maybe, maybe they've done something illegal. Maybe the donor has been paid. So the pairs we've dealt with so far have, have what... We, we had to face this with American Kidney Exchange, too. Have, they have what's called an emotional connection, right? So Jose and Christine are married to each other for a long time. They have a child that passes muster in the United States as, as giving the presumption that they... they one of them hasn't bought the kidney from the other. Um, now, I, I have a blog called Market Design, and when I say that there will be some repugnance, I can tell you, you know, so when I started blogging about global kidney exchange, we got some comments that said, this is really a bad idea. Incidentally, people who think that, say, buying a kidney is a bad idea, don't, don't merely think it's a bad idea. They think it's the kind of bad idea that only bad people have. And, and, and again, you know, it's against the law everywhere in the world. So, so as social scientists, it's our job to understand what's going on. And it's not enough to understand which things you find repugnant and not. You have to understand what other people find repugnant and not. And, and think about that. So here's, here's the first repugnant comment I got. It says, uh, it's not really about the international recipient or donor, but only about getting organs for U.S. citizens, so it's exploitative. So that's a, that's a comment that says, this global kidney exchange you're talking about is just an America first kind of thing. That's why it's repugnant. The second one says, let's solve the problems at home first. We should encourage programs that allow Americans to help Americans, which is, of course, a, a perfectly good sentiment. That's a comment that says, it's not an American first uh, idea. Uh, that's what makes it repugnant. And then the, the third one says, you're exploiting a social condition, being destitute in a foreign country that kidney transplantation, that, you know, being destitute in a foreign country. You're exploiting this social condition, and kidney exchange, kidney transplantation should somehow be insulated from that. So I don't quite understand that one, but, but it's from a very eminent surgeon. And so these are things, you know, as market designers, we have to take repugnance concerns seriously. Now... I'm optimistic, though. Here's, here's a, a graphic of a chain that, a global kidney exchange that has a, a Mexican patient donor, pair in it. And what makes me optimistic is, is first of all, not all the, you know, not every transplant professional, not every member of the public finds this repugnant, although there's some, some incipient repugnance. But in the places where global kidney exchange has been done, in the places where it's saved the lives of patients from the developing world, it's been received quite cheerfully. So here's a copy, a, a recent issue, a 2017 issue of a Newsweek en Espanol. This is Newsweek published in Mexico and Latin America. And on their cover they say, uh, transplants of kidneys between the U.S. and Mexico, a bridge of life. And the first paragraph says, just as U.S. President Donald Trump is seeking to build a wall of thousands of miles on the border with Mexico, a tireless surgeon and an economist join forces to exchange organs <laughs> between citizens of both countries. So, so I think there's a chance that we're going to be able to do this. It's not a sure thing. Right? Market design is a, a delicate business, and it's an especially delicate business when you're talking about kidney transplants, and it's even more delicate when you're talking about 
kidney patients and donors in the developing world. But I hope that it seems plausible to you and that the next time I come to England, I might be able to report more progress. Thank you. Thank you, Al, for illuminating how challenging uh, this field is and how much potential there is for, for uh, welfare gains. Um, I'm going to open it up. We have about 25 minutes um, until we're due to leave here, so I'm going to ask for questions. If you can please uh, keep your questions in the form of a question and short. Um, we'll, uh, we have a, a number of mics, and they can be sent, sent through. Yes, go ahead. Firstly, thank you for the talk. Secondly, you chose your words quite carefully in terms of saying some economists. So whether, whether you believe it or not, do you have any suggestions or ideas on how the repugnance could be tackled so that you could have some kind of price in the market that means more people could receive kidneys? Well, there are three big associations of American surgeons, and two of them have recently issued cautious statements that say, really, it's time to start experimenting how we could get more donations. Um, it's, it's a very tough subject. So I think that the first thing we have to do is, is try to remove the disincentives, the financial disincentives to giving someone a kidney. If you happen to love me enough to give me a kidney, it would actually cost you a lot of money to do that because I live in California and my doctors would be in California and so you would have to fly to California and uh, get a hotel room for a few days before the surgery and a few days afterward. You might have to miss some days of work maybe two or three weeks of work. So, so people who give kidneys actually have some out-of-pocket expenses, which, which can be repaid within the American law, but mostly are not. So the first thing I think we should try to do is make sure that we remove the financial disincentives. If we do that in a careful and thoughtful and carefully collecting data way, we'll be able to see to what extent this changes the elasticity of supply, and that might further the discussion. Is there, so I'm just going to jump in here because of the, the previous work you've done on repugnance. Is there anything that we can learn from how there's been many norms of repugnance that have changed over time and yep. markets that have been allowed so, through that? So Repugnance have changed over time. You know, my... Um, well, so I know, I know people with very strong positions on both sides of this because I deal with, with transplant professionals. Uh, one of the... Well, let, let me, this is a non sequitur, and then I'll come back to answering your questions. One of the best compliments I got to my paper, Repugnance as a Constraint on Markets, was I wrote a bit about kidneys, and, and many of my kidney transplant colleagues said to me, several of my kidney transplant colleagues said to me, I thought you gave a, a very fair account of, of both sides of the argument, but I could tell that you agree with me. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the concerns that my, my colleagues who, who find incentives, repugnant, is that if you talk about it too much, you, you make it less repugnant. They're just about, you know, yeah, talk exactly. about it, it's think about slope. it. And, you know, think about same-sex marriage. I'm not quite sure how it went here in the UK, but in the United States, it took about a dozen years between the first legalization in the state of Massachusetts till a Supreme Court decision that decided that, that same-sex marriage should be honored everywhere in the United States. And those were very politically 
divided years, and, and it's still a politically divisive question. But, um, but by talking about it, by making people realize that they knew people who wanted to marry other people who were the same gender and that the world didn't end when they did, uh, gradually that became less repugnant, and, and it's now available everywhere in the U.S., and I, I gather in the U.K. as well. Um, so I think that talking about this and making clear that, uh, that there are possibilities to do this in an in a ethical way that, that doesn't um, exploit poor and vulnerable people, and it's important to keep that very central in the argument because black markets run by criminals do exploit poor and vulnerable people. So, so we have to be sure that the model for, for legal incentives look nothing like the illegal black markets. There. We'll start there. Uh, th- thank you, Professor, for the wonderful presentation. And it's been long said, I think, um, if you develop cloning techniques, you can, cre- you can resolve a lot of uh, problems. If you, c- if you develop cloning techniques and create human organs, uh, you, you can resolve a lot of transplant, uh, transplant problems. It's been said so for a long time. But at the same time, as you know, there's a massive repugnance against the idea of uh, uh, cloning techniques, e- even cloning the human organs. Uh, can you suggest? Can you can you make a suggestion how we can get over such a, a repugnance against cloning, so that we can get get over the transparent problems by using the cloning techniques, and hopefully by using your uh, market designing theories. So, how to reduce the repugnance of cloning? Well, so I don't know the answer to that. But remember, I started to talk about surrogacy briefly. And surrogacy, one of the technologies it depends on is in vitro fertilization, which was developed here in Britain in the 1970s and was not uniformly acclaimed as a a fine way to have children. But um, not too long ago, it won a Nobel Prize and uh, is now very widely regarded as part of medical treatment of infertility. So... um, so certainly technological advances in medicine can come to be understood to be good things, even, even when, in, when seen in practice, even when in theory they may not be. Now, cloning, I'm not quite sure what that means. You know, I understand when you clone Dolly the sheep that you have another sheep that's a lot like Dolly. I don't think that the way we want to get organs is to clone you and have another person who's a lot like you who will then... Right, remember, kidneys... We have living donation, but hearts we don't. Uh, So we don't want to sacrifice your clone. Um, On the other hand, there's stem cell technology that's being developed, part of the the cloning revolution to some extent, which which suggests that maybe one day we'll be able to grow new kidneys. There's xenotransplantation. There's the hope that maybe pigs can, can grow kidneys that will be compatible with human transplantation. There's work on artificial organs that, that might be transplanted. So I think that your grandchildren and mine will regard transplantation as an ancient barbarity. They'll say, is it really true, Grandpa, that that when you were young, um, you used to cut an organ out of a healthy person and sew it into a sick person, and that that was modern medicine? And we'll have to say to them, yeah, that was modern medicine. We were proud to be able to do it. So, So I look forward to the day when there'll be no transplants. Maybe cloning will be part of that. But everyone who needs a kidney today will likely be dead by then. So, so today we have to we have responsibility for people who need transplants today. Uh, thank you, Professor. That was fascinating on a uh, level of markets helping an emotional response. 
Do you feel that we need uh, repugnance to be introduced into legal markets, where we actually use your concept of repugnance, which is a very good way of barriers to obvious choice, that exploiting people for their work capabilities, which is legal, um, we should actually start to introduce repugnance to get fair markets in legal terms, rather than just simply to reduce repugnance to new markets. Okay. I'm, I'm not positive I understand your question, so let me answer it circuitously. Um, making something legal doesn't necessarily make it not repugnant, and not everything that's repugnant is illegal. So, so there are certainly markets whose operation we don't approve of, and the whole point of market design is to fix markets when we think that they're broken. Markets are human artifacts. They're tools that we make, and if we don't like the way they work, we should fix them. Now, about repugnance. When I was young, in the 1970s, there was the Vietnam War was on, and the United States was, was a big participant, and we had a conscription army. And today we have a volunteer army. And at the time that we did the transition, there was a lot of public discussion about whether that would make serving in the American armed services repugnant, whether, whether American soldiers would become mercenaries. Now, that has not happened. When someone runs for political office in the United States, if they were a serving soldier when they were young, they make a point of that in their campaign. You should vote for me because I serve my country. In Germany, prostitution is legal. But unlike serving in the American army, making prostitution legal has not made it unrepugnant. No one runs for the German parliament saying, vote for me, I was a sex worker. I I raised welfare. Um, So so the question of repugnance is different from the question of legality and illegality. And partly the question of what's repugnant um, lies with us. And... You know, in the supermarket where, where I shop, you can buy uh, tuna in which killing dolphins isn't implicated, and it's a little more expensive. But if there's a demand for that, then there'll be, there'll be fewer gill nets and more uh, other ways of catching tuna. Um, I think if you worry about where your shoes come from, uh, then, then you know, we, we, could, we could argue about whether it's a good thing or a poor thing to have child workers in Bangladesh making footwear for people in rich countries. Uh, you're probably familiar with both sides of that argument. But, but I think that um, some of the solution might be in trade agreements and, and laws, and some of it might be in, in consumer behavior. I think I, I would like to understand repugnance much better than I do. Um, back there. Uh, thank you for the talk. I, I just had a question about kind of... Um, you know, re- repugnance and in towards the the centralized party organizing the marketplace, and you know, is there you know is there research on that? I mean, I mean, like Uber is a very efficient marketplace, and then it's creating a lot of repugnance as you know taking a lot of the of the profits. And so you've talked about repugnance in kind of peer to peer transaction, but is there also repugnance you know towards third party and research on it? Is there, repeat the last sentence, is there repugnance? Is there, is there re- re- research on, you know, uh, on you know, third party repugnance towards third party and how you do a market design as a third party and actually you know, make sure that the design you know, is, 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 is adequate? Well, there, there's some thought on, th- I mean, not just research, but, but legislation about third parties. Uh, I mentioned that prostitution is legal in Germany, but third parties can't be involved. Being a, a procurer, being a pimp is illegal. So if you're a prostitute, you have to manage your own business. Um, 
you, you can't have someone manage it for you. Uh, and the thought being is that we find pimps more repugnant than we find prostitutes. Um, there's certainly some literature on, on third-party actions, you know, middlemen. Sometimes, sometimes there's some repugnance, I think not often well understood, but, but, but often we talk about how little the growers of some of our agricultural produce get and how much you're charged at your local coffee shop for, for a couple of coffee beans. So that's, that's a, a repugnance at the, at the middleman supply chain, right? A lot of hands touch coffee beans between the, the harvesting or the planting and, uh, and turning it into a cafe latte with mocha. Um, and, and it is true that in the, in the Uber debate, the whole delete Uber movement led to a bunch of changes based on repugnance, consumer repugnance over business practices. Yeah. So. That's right. So, so certainly there are some um, things we find repugnant. Some of them change over time. There was a time when um, credit card contracts, the, the contracts that banks had with, with merchants, said that you couldn't give discounts for cash. Right? You couldn't charge extra for credit cards. And, and to some extent, that was a repugnance-driven uh, argument, although uh, since credit cards charge merchants uh, a fee, it also makes sense to, to discount. Um, so I think repugnance is often used as an argument. Right? I, I think my competitors behave in a repugnant way. Um, sometimes that argument is effective. But, but again, I, I, I would like to, I think of repugnance as something I would like to understand a lot better than I do. Um, it's had important economic consequences. You know, I've mentioned some repugnance that may strike you as exotic, but during the Middle Ages, it was repugnant and largely illegal to charge interest on loans for a couple of hundred years. And of course, we couldn't have the global capitalist market that we have today if we didn't have a market for capital. And charging interest as such, is still repugnant in some Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, although there's an Islamic finance that, that finds market design ways to, to, do, to accomplish some of the things that, that interest on loans accomplishes in, in uh, conventional finance. So, um, so repugnance is a big deal. I, if I understood it better, I'd be a lot smarter than I am. So we're going to just collect a few questions. So let's take three questions at a time. All right, thank you. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a medical doctor and a master's student, and I really think that you should be having this talk in, in medical school as well. Uh, so I, I do my, do that. I give what are called surgical grand rounds. Yeah, yeah that's, it's actually more medicine-related than many of the, uh, the talks I've had in medical school. Uh, well, but my question is... Uh, uh, my sort of confusion is that when you're talking about the global kidney chain, everyone has to sort of be paired with a person who's every every recipient has to be paired with a with a donor who is capable of donating a kidney. That's how the chain goes on and on. But how how does that and and you said that it always ends on maybe a person on a waiting list who does not have that you know that 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 person to to donate a kidney on his or her behalf. Uh, my question is sort of so 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 in that in that sense it seems that the chain is only accessible for those people who are relatively 
privileged or, you know, in the sense that they have enough social support to have a person to donate a kidney for themselves. Uh, what about the people on the, on the waiting list who does not have, you know, a relative to do that for them, not to mention, say, a homeless person in the Philippines, you know, with ESRD, what's going to happen to them? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great. Up here? Question about a possible market in citizenship. Citizenship is a valuable status and normally it's acquired through heritage. And, but at the margin, there is trading them and what it would take to have it a better organized market in citizenship. Um, I have a more sociology-related question, which might not be appropriate, so don't worry if you can't answer it. Um, I don't, do you have any theories on why Germany and the United States seem to find opposite things repugnant in terms of... <laughs> Prostitution versus all fertility treatments, including egg donation. Okay, let, let, me, um, let me try to take them in order. Uh, so the first question said, uh, kidney exchange directly benefits people who have willing donors and, and doesn't as directly benefit people who don't, and that's certainly true. Uh, if you have someone who loves you and is healthy enough to give a kidney... That, that's a big advantage. But of course, kidney exchange also helps people who do not have living donors and are on the waiting list for deceased donors. And the reason is it removes people from the deceased donor list. So if I've been sick longer than you have, then I'm ahead of you on the deceased donor list. But if NAVA loves me enough to give me a kidney, then that takes me off the list and moves you up closer to getting a, uh, an organ. So by creating more transplants, we help everyone who needs a transplant because we reduce the over, somewhat reduce the over-demand for, for the scarce deceased donor kidneys. So the second question was, how about a market in citizenship? And, and of course, citizenship doesn't only come by heritage. Uh, these days, one of the matching markets that's working very poorly is the market for refugee resettlement. Okay? And, uh, you know, when, when you want to go to Greece, you fly there. You don't put your children in a little boat in the winter. There's a, I forget her name now, but there's a Somali poet who resides in London who uh, wrote a poem that has a line that says, uh, the only reason you put your children in a boat is if the sea is safer than the land. So refugees are in a tough situation, but it's a matching market. You can't just choose where to go. Neither can, neither can the developed world just choose who comes, right? The people come. So um, we're going to have a lot of opportunity in the coming years to learn from our mistakes in how to better organize mass human migrations. If uh, some of it might involve trading, but a lot of it is just going to have to involve processing and dealing with new immigrants. There are, um, I think the hardest part of that question is deciding who gets asylum in which countries. But there are somewhat easier parts that are still hard and that need research. And there are some people, uh, Alex Tettelboim and other English economists, are talking about how to decide once people have been granted asylum in the UK, how they should be resettled, where they should be resettled. So that's also a question that's a little bit like school choice in its own way. That is, families, refugee families, have some information about what jobs they can do, what kind of assistance they need, what languages they speak where kin are already settled. So, so I think that the market for citizenship is one that we're handling very badly now. 
Uh, we had better learn from our experience because if the, if the sea level rises, uh, there'll be lots more human migration. And the third question was sociology. Um, you know, repugnance in general reminds me of, of an old joke about economics and sociology, uh, which says that economics is about how you make choices, and sociology is about why you don't have any choices. <laughs> and, and of course, repugnant markets are markets where we've decided you shouldn't have a choice. We've made some market illegal to, to stop you from having to choose whether to sell your kidney or to, to hire a surrogate. Um, now, why Germany is the opposite of the U.S., I don't know. I'm not sure that they really are the opposite. But Germany has some repugnance in its not-so-distant history, and that makes them quite concerned. So, for instance, kidney exchange is not legal in Germany. What German law says about kidney transplantation is that Nava can't give me a kidney. She can only give a kidney to a member of her immediate family, defined in German law as her parents and siblings and spouse and children. My wife, Emily, could give me a kidney. And German interpretation of that law is even if my wife wants to give me a kidney and Nava wants to give someone in her family a kidney, but we can't, even though if we could, if we were medically compatible, that would qualify, that would reassure the German prosecutors that we hadn't paid for the kidney, the fact that we want to exchange violates the law. So, so that's, when I'm in Germany, I try to relax that law. Um, so I don't know why Germany is the opposite of the U.S., but I think some of the concern in Germany has to do with their history from World War II and that that makes them especially careful. We have time for one, one last question. Okay. <laughs> Highly enthusiastic person. <laughs> Sorry, this was just, I was very curious. Um, in the chain you showed, some of the pairs were matching, uh, but they were still included in the chain. Is this an economic or medical requirement? Why, were, one, they, why were they included in the chain if they match? If you're compatible. If the, if the pairs, yeah. You, you could, so your sister wants to give you a kidney, you could get a kidney from her. Can you be in the chain? No, no, but they were in the chain. Why were they in the chain? Okay, so, so, the quest, so if I understand the question is, sometimes there's someone in the chain who could have gotten a compatible kidney. First of all, um, I'm not quite sure how you tell that because all I showed was the blood types but there's another big cause of incompatibility, which is immunological incompatibility. Um, if, if you, um, you have six proteins called human leukocyte antigens that alert the immune system about whether you're a foreign body or not. And if I've had a lot of medical treatment, I might have a lot of antibodies to proteins. So one of the reasons that uh, people can't give each other a kidney is because of these immunological incompatibilities. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is a digression. I'm going to come and answer your question, though. Uh, but uh, the chance, if I didn't know my own blood type, the, the unconditional chance that one of you could take my kidney is a bit over 50%. But the chance that my wife can take my kidney is only about 30%. And that's because she and I are parents. And in the course of childbirth, her immune system might have become exposed to some of the proteins that our children inherit from me. And if so, her immune system might have developed antibodies to those proteins in the children, my proteins, that, that would cause her immune system to attack my kidney if it appeared. So sometimes pa patients can look compatible but are not. However, compatible pairs are sometimes invited into kidney exchange. If I needed a kidney, probably the people who love me enough to give me a kidney are mostly around my age. 
There's my wife and my brother and my brother-in-law, and a kidney like that would save my life. But supposing at the same time, someone loved you who was a 25-year-old Olympic athlete uh, in great condition, huge kidney, uh, <laughs> but, but who was incompatible with you. Well, my, my brother's kidney would save your life, and your intended donor's kidney might be better for me than my brother's kidney, because my brother's around my age. So sometimes we could mutually benefit each other by exchange, even though I could have taken my brother's kidney. So this fascinating kind of detail is in uh, is that Al's book, which is actually on sale outside <laughs> uh, with the British cover. And, uh, and so there will be... Um, and the British t- subtitle. <laughs> and the British subtitle. So it'll be, uh, there'll be a, a short book sale and a short book signing uh, here on stage for about 10 minutes before we have to take him away. And so uh, welcome to do that. Thank you very much. For Thank you, Nava. Uh,